Well, we have reached that time where we can take up the Word of God together and study to show ourselves approved. So if you will find your way to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, which we have spent uh, a great deal of time in already, and we still have uh, about half of the chapter left before us, and there's so much rich stuff here for us to, to mine, and I'm very excited to get into this with you this morning. As you're turning there, let me, uh, let me just say a few words of introduction. Um, I want to say that everybody knows, I'm sure, what it's like to be treated badly. We all know that. There's not one person in the world that hasn't suffered from unfair treatment at various times in his or her life, whether it's from the government or the IRS or tyrannical bosses, wicked neighbors, even family members. Most know what it feels like to be disrespected at the counter of some municipality. They're quite familiar with the awful feeling of being unjustly accused. Christians certainly are not immune to ill treatment just because they're Christians. In fact, the opposite is true. We receive a double portion of the ill treatment that unbelievers experience. You see, in addition to suffering the common bad experiences of life that they experience, we receive persecution specifically for following Jesus. And I think it's fair to say, then, that all people, of all the people in the world, Christians have been and continue to be the most persecuted lot. I believe that's true because persecution, you see, is integral to the Christian faith, regardless of of what the proponents of the prosperity gospel may say. That doesn't mean that we, of course, go looking for it. No, certainly not. It means that when we live obediently, persecution finds us. And in that way, persecution is really a good thing because it's an indication that we, well, we're doing something right. We're doing something godly. We are being obedient to our God. That's why Peter and John, by the way, rejoiced after they had received a beating from the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and 5. To them it was an indication that God had considered them worthy to suffer for the name. And the more we stand for truth, the worse it will get, as we've heard already this morning from a number who have been on this platform. Peter has something to say about this. He remarks in his first epistle, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. Did you catch that? There's something about God's people being persecuted for obedience to him that actually pleases him. Now this really has always been the case for God's people. It's always been this way, even for those in the Old Testament. Asaph's observation in Psalm 73, that good things happen to wicked people and bad things happen to righteous ones is a common observation. But it was so pronounced in Asaph's lifetime that he actually admits entertaining whether living an obedient life was worth it. I think a lot of Christians are there today. He said, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. Maybe you've been there as a believer. Maybe you're there now and you're doing a good job of hiding it. It's a terrible place for Christians to be. It's defeating, it's weakening, 
And it's leading, it leads to drifting from sound doctrine. You may not know that what turned Asaph around was his understanding of future realities that God promised, both for the righteous and for the wicked. He went to the sanctuary of the righteous, saw the glory of God displayed in the praises of the assembly, like we do here every Sunday, heard God's instruction on the matter, like we do here every Sunday, and learned that though the wicked may be more prosperous than the righteous now, they have their reward already, and nothing but judgment awaits them after death. The righteous, however, well, they suffer now, even unjustly, but God will usher them into everlasting joy and into a great inheritance at the end of time. It led him actually to declare, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And with you I desire nothing on earth. Those are such great sentiments. We should all share. And especially because we're new covenant believers. We actually have more reason to say that than Asaph does or did. It displays a mature Christian attitude, one that's firmly grounded not only in biblical doctrine, but firmly grounded in God's promises of future blessing. You see, it's an attitude that anticipates their fulfillment. It sees our blessed hope as a reality, as good as fulfilled, and lives in light of that reality. And when that happens, we do whatever God calls us to endure for his name now because we know that the best is yet to come. Therefore, we can persevere through persecution and difficult times in a godly and even in a joyful way now. Can you see that, that the perspective penetrates beyond suffering to the, of the present time to the glory that lies ahead? Can you see that? It's the perspective that the writer of the Hebrews wanted the Jewish Christian audience to whom he was writing to have. They were drifting. They were lacking confidence. And they needed this perspective. In fact, it is a perspective that we must make our own if we're going to withstand the current season of apostasy and compromise that the body of Christ at large faces now. I don't have to tell you about, about the destructive ideologies that have been devised by secular minds of our age for political gain that have permeated our public conscience and that the public conscience has seeped into the church and is championed by misguided pastors and leaders all over the place. Whatever the motive, fear of man, fear of being labeled a racist, fear of being canceled, as it were, or, or even rationalizing these destructive heresies under the guise of becoming all things to all men in order to win some, many in the church have bought into critical race theory, intersectionality, the idea of white Christians are equally as racist as white non-Christians simply by virtue of being white, and they need to repent. There are well-known Christian leaders that refuse to speak in churches that are not racially diverse, and seminaries teach this stuff to budding future church leaders. 
biblical manhood and womanhood are being redefined by our culture. And churches, churches are, are falling for it all. And what's, what's going on is an absolute mess. It's a travesty, and it hurts the testimony of Christ. And I believe that those of us who stand for the purity of doctrine and dare to live it before the world are in for some very rough storms ahead. Again, as was mentioned by a few men here on this platform earlier. The writer of Hebrews assures us that we can weather them, persevere through them, no matter how severe, in an obedient way, by faith, in God's promises of future blessing. And that's the idea of Hebrews 11. We are in a section in Hebrews 11 that gives us a glimpse of Moses persevering by faith through the extreme difficulties of his life. We started with his parents, if you remember, back in verse 23, and we argued that faith perseveres through fear. But we take up Moses himself now, and we look at verses 24 to 27 to see how biblical faith perseveres through suffering and even through death threats in order to honor God. Moses, Moses, there needs some, uh, we need to give a little context about Moses. Moses is an adult now. He's not a baby anymore. He's an adult. He's nearing 40. And he is presented with the challenge to live obediently before the Lord and to testify to his great name before Pharaoh. That's the challenge. And it is a challenge to be sure because from Egypt's point of view, obeying the Lord will surely wind Moses up in a very bad place. And that would be suffering with his people. Now here we learn the next truth about living by faith. It goes like this. Faith perseveres obediently through suffering. It perseveres obediently through suffering. That's the truth of verse 24. Let's open it up. Moses, when Moses was an adult, we read, and he by faith refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Stop right there. You remember that Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses, raised him in the customs of Egypt. He received the finest education in the land. He grew up a well-educated and well-cultured individual. And as long as he was in Pharaoh's house, well, he wanted for nothing, had the finest clothes, finest fare, protection, servants, and even had an opportunity to exercise his mind and his talents to advance Egypt's culture and fame. But as wonderful as all that sounds, Moses rejected his prestige. He spurned it. He turned from it the way a child does from a dish of vegetables. Now, that wasn't because prestige <clears throat> is inherently sinful uh, and that God's people should never have a high position of respect and honor, as some people in the church naively believe. Absolutely not. In fact, there were many instances in the Bible, or are many instances in the Bible, where God's people hold such positions. The kings of, the, of, of Israel enjoyed this status, especially David and Solomon. And others were well-respected, um, even in secular contexts, right? Like Daniel. He was a humble servant of Yahweh that earned prestige in Babylon. Closer to Moses' time, though, and closer to his context, was Joseph. Let's not forget Joseph. Now, like Joseph, 
Moses was in a position of power and privilege in the palace of a particular ruling dynasty. But unlike Joseph, Moses spurned it and wanted nothing to do with it. So one embraced his high position, the other one spurned it. Both men were godly and did what was right in God's sight. So the reason Moses abdicated his prestigious position was because it prevented him from honoring and serving God and his people. Whereas Joseph's context facilitated that. So the circumstances really make all the difference. God arranged for Joseph to be the second most powerful man in Egypt and then used him to bring Israel into Egypt, protect them, and multiply them. As a result, Joseph embraced his position. God also clearly arranged through a series of circumstances for Moses to reject his position so that ultimately God would use Moses to bring Israel out of a hostile environment and preserve them. You see, it's not the high position in and of itself that's sinful, but whether or not it suits godliness and the interests of God's people. It did for Joseph, it didn't for Moses. I would argue then that Moses would have sinned had he retained his status. But he doesn't. He does the godly thing. He turns from it. And notice the writer of Hebrews commends him for his decision. But that's not the end of the story. For Moses to turn his back on Egypt meant that he would have to endure the same fate as his people. Look at verse 25 choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. Now this description is very interesting, at the very least because it occurs only here in Hebrews. We find it nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere. It's not in the Exodus account, it's not in Stephen's account in Acts 7. Only here do we learn that Moses suffered ill treatment with his people. But it's, it's a significant piece of revelation just the same. It says that Moses' decision to move in an obedient direction would necessarily bring him out of the quote-unquote good life into suffering. And the brevity of the writer's description of these events indicates that Moses was decisive. Make no mistake about that. He was decisive. There's no hint that Moses thought long and hard about it, maybe vacillated or rationalized about keeping his high position in a way that would seem godly. Oh, no. No, Moses would endure suffering and refuse to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin of his high position, period. Now, let me elaborate on this just a bit more because it's, it's a choice, that we all need to make constantly in the Christian life, and more so today, because of all the things that are taking place. And it's fast becoming an unpopular decision for God's people today. Let me make three observations for you about Moses' decision in verse 25. I think they're very important for us. First of all, first observation is this. Moses' experience is what is common to all of us, all believers in Christ. He faces that proverbial fork in the road that presents us with two opposite ways of life, the way of righteousness and the way of sin. Two. And there are only two. There are no middle ground. There's no neutral ground ever. Now, why these two ways? While these two ways are different and they run in opposite directions, one the narrow way to life, and the other, the broad road to destruction, there is often, 
appealing exit signs, if I could put it that way, station along the righteous narrow way that catches the eye of the godly who have become weary of well-doing. It presents itself as the scenic route, easy traveling, no bumps in the road, no hard climbs, no steep declines. No, it's, it's much less arduous, much more enjoyable, exciting, satisfying to the senses. It is the way that leads to fame and fortune, unlike, of course, the way of righteousness, which proves to be arduous. It's an arduous trek filled with thankless and unrewarding labor. In Moses' case, the way of destruction was the pleasures of Egypt and the way of righteousness involved suffering. Now, the second observation I want you to, I want you to see is this. The sinful way cannot deliver on its promises and it is clearly not the way to go. It offers only temporary pleasure that will ultimately wind the traveler up in despair. The exit sign that we encounter from time to time on the narrow way that promises a better traveling experience and they're really put there by the evil one to derail us, to bring us to a dead end and away from orthodoxy. We might call the recurring exits driftway exit. I like that. Driftway exit. It's prom- it promises things that, uh, that it cannot really keep. Its promises are short-lived. The writer refers to the pleasures of Egypt as temporary pleasures of sin. So for Moses, that is exactly what his position amounted to. Now, some might wonder about whether secular ways of living are truly temporary. Are they? I mean, many seem to have enjoyed fame all their lives till they die. Yes, they have. But remember, Asaph answered that question, right? Even if one enjoyed sinful pleasures his entire life, what is a lifetime compared to eternity? Things of this world are fleeting and will end. The writer said already, it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment. God's way, by sharp contrast, is eternal and has eternal rewards. David could speak in Psalm 16 of eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Remember? Now, on to the third and final observation. Moses deliberately chooses to travel the way of righteousness. You know, these are very simple observations, but they're somewhat profound because a lot of times Christians miss this. And here we see that Moses deliberately chooses to travel the righteous way. I want to highlight the deliberateness of Moses' decision. He made a conscious and deliberate decision to do the obedient thing when he, faced, when he was faced with these two options. None of us uh, ever simply falls into one or the other of these two options. Never. It's never an accident. We always choose. Now granted, sometimes we compromise or rationalize our decision to go a sinful direction, but we really know what we're doing in our heart of hearts. And I'll say that the way of sin always seems more appealing to us when we are not walking by faith at any given moment. The temptation to go that way is always greater. 
That's what we want to walk by faith, and we want to be deliberate about it. We want to deliberately choose God's way without hesitation, without regret, but with joy and anticipation of God's promise of future blessing. Moses did just that. His current status represented the sinful way of life, a a way that was devoid of God and didn't cultivate righteousness, but worldly self-satisfaction. He reasoned that it was always better to be on, on God's side, even if that meant suffering for righteous sake, because God's promises are eternal. God will deliver on them. Well, what we've said so far is that by faith, Moses turned his back on Egypt to suffer with God's people because that was the way of righteousness, the best way for him to express his devotion to God and his longing for God's promises. And that is the important part of this section. Moses was motivated to do what he did by faith in God's covenant promises. We cannot miss that. Identifying with God's people was certainly part of the equation. Yes, he was a Hebrew by birth. He loved his people. He wanted to identify with them and support them, even if it meant hardship and suffering. But there is a greater reason for his reformation from prince to pauper. There is a a greater reason. And it was his spiritual identification with Messiah. That was actually more significant than his racial identification with Israel. Remember, Moses was a true believer. He trusted in God's promise, in what Messiah would come to do, both in redemption as well as restoration. And I believe this strongly because the writer of Hebrews does. Excuse me. Look at verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for Moses was looking to the reward. I have to tell you, that is a remarkable bit of commentary on Moses' state of mind. Remarkable. And we can be sure that it is reliable because it's really the Holy Spirit's commentary on Moses. And here is where we pick up the theme of faith once again that runs very hard through this entire chapter. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for Proof of things not seen. According to this last part of verse 26, Moses abandoned the momentary pleasures of sin, a sinful lifestyle in Egypt, to suffer as an obedient servant because he considered the reproach of Christ more desirable than anything he experienced in his life. We might substitute the word Christ with Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which the LXX, the Septuagint, would have used. That's why the writer uses Christ instead of Messiah. But Moses was looking to Messiah. Moses identified most with Messiah. He was united to Messiah through faith and would gladly suffer reproach that is associated with the way of Messiah. Stephen would point this out, this very close association between Moses and Jesus when he reminded his false accusers that Moses prophesied at the time when Messiah would come. A prophet like me, Moses said. Here's Acts 7.37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your country. 
So there's no question that Moses saw his role, especially later when he was in full swing as leader of the nation, to be symbolic of Messiah's role, and that both would deliver God's people and both would suffer greatly for it. In fact, even Jesus himself confirmed Moses' association with him by faith when he told his persecutors in John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for Moses wrote of me. Isn't that wonderful? Moses wrote of Christ. So because Moses' current status as an Egyptian convert, so to speak, would not promote all that he believed and longed for in Messiah, he knew he needed to break free from it. The first chance he got. And it would be by faith in God's promise that, that would be fulfilled in the work of Messiah that would give Moses the wherewithal to make this break and join his people and suffer right along with them and do what he had to. Philip Edgecombe Hughes also believed that Moses was associating with Messiah more than just associating with the Israelites. He explains it this way, quote, For the man of faith, the way of obedience is also the way of suffering. And in choosing this way, Moses was confirming, a conforming rather, to the pattern which was to have its perfect exemplification in the obedience and suffering of God's anointed one. End quote. Hughes is right. The fuller ex- expression of the perfect way of righteousness that ultimately leads to glory that must first endure suffering was certainly found in, in Christ. Jesus had to suffer the cross before he would receive the crown. And in so doing, he laid down for us an example to follow, right? You know that, 1 Peter 2.21. For, for you have been called for this purpose. He's talking about suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. No question about it. Moses was motivated by this perspective of faith, a perspective that penetrates beyond suffering to the present, the suffering of the present time, to the glory that lies ahead. Writer tells his congregation, and us by extension, that if we live by faith in the better country, the coming of our Lord, the blessings of glory, then we'll have no problem considering the reproach of Christ to be of greater importance by far than anything this world can offer. In fact, the writer will beckon his congregation later in chapter 13 to come outside the camp where Christ is and share his reproach. A person of faith chooses the way of obedience and suffering, not out of obligation, not out of constraint, but willingly, I might add, joyfully, because he knows that that was the goal of Messiah. Jesus submitted to the Father's will to do what was necessary, satisfied the Father, and saved a people for himself. Everything about the deal was intolerable. Everything. He chose it anyway. Be born into a poor family, stigma of being an illegitimate child, hated, despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows who would eventually be forsaken by God himself. 
Jesus would have endured, would have had to endure the cross before receiving the crown. And Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 5 to do just that. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul taught those in Lystra and Derby the principle of cross before the crown as well. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God, he said. He would write to Timothy, Indeed, all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we're not surprised that Paul himself lived by this very principle. Listen to Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And in Colossians 1 verse 24, Paul explains that we all, as an extension of Christ's body, continue to receive the sufferings and persecution that Jesus would have reaped if he were present today. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body, which is the church. The way of the Christian is the way of Christ. The way of Christ is the way of the cross. The way of the cross is the way of suffering, and the way of suffering is the way to glory. Suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ is integral to the Christian life. There will be no crown without the cross. But do you live by faith in the crown? Do you see with the eyes of faith the glory that God has promised to his elect? Because if you do, then you also take God's word by faith that persecution for righteousness is normal for you. It's a normal part of the Christian life integral to it, and, and that far from being moved by it, you will receive it gladly. For as Paul says, it is simply producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Well, we need to get on to the last truth that we can entertain. We have time only for that. This is the second truth, third in the section. It's in verse 27, and we might say it this way. Faith perseveres through the threat of death. Faith perseveres through death threats. It says, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, not, for he persevered as though seeing him who is unseen. What a great statement that is. There is a crescendo effect here. Moses not only rejected the finer things of his Egyptian upbringing, he sides with Israel over Egypt by coming to the aid of his fellow Hebrew and killing his Egyptian abuser. Do you remember that? His defense of a slave at the expense of an Egyptian life would bring the full brunt of Pharaoh's wrath down upon him. The Exodus account records Moses fleeing shortly after this incident. Now, we also know <clears throat> that Moses left Egypt twice in his life, right? He left twice. Once he left alone, 
The second time, he left with the nation of Israel, the actual exodus. Which one, of, which one the writer has in mind here in verse 27 is debated. The arguments are rather involved, and there are good points on both sides. I'll simply say that if we assume that the writer is going in, through the events in Moses' life in chronological order, then the first leaving would be the better choice. That's because the text, or the next event in the text, that the writer brings up is in, in verse 28, is the Passover, which comes after Moses left Egypt the first time and before he leaves the second time with Israel. Now, if the writer meant Moses' uh, second departure, the actual ex exodus, then his mention of the Passover is out of chronological order. Now, if we go with Moses' first, first departure, then, as, as the one that the writer meant, some argue at this point that this poses a contradiction because the statement in Hebrews 11.27 that Moses did not fear the wrath of the king doesn't seem to square with the implication from Exodus 2 Verses 14 and 15, that Moses fled Egypt out of fear. Listen to the original account. You'll see what I mean. Moses rescues the, uh, the, the Hebrew who's being beaten by the Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian. After that, he later finds the same Hebrew arguing with another Hebrew, and he interrupts them. And the one Hebrew says to Moses, who made you ruler or judge over, over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard about this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. All right, so at first glance, you read this, it seems as though Moses fled Egypt in fear of his life. But on closer examination, that is really not what the text says at all. If Moses was willing to turn his back on Egypt and suffer cruel treatment for his, with his people, why would he ever be afraid to die? Now, the text says that Moses feared that the word of his killing the Egyptian might get out. If it did, then Pharaoh would come after him with all he had and put a stop to Moses' rescue mission as a deliverer. In other words, what Exodus means here when it says that Moses was afraid that the murder might become known is more figurative than literal. He was not literally terrified of something, but rather concerned. It is similar to us saying, well, I'm afraid that our church picnic might get rained out and we have to go indoors. We don't mean by that that we're terrified of the rain. No, we are concerned that the rain would interrupt our plans for a church picnic. This was true in Moses' case. Now, Pharaoh had a contract out on his life. So Moses needed to do what was best for the goal of helping his people. And at that particular time, it would have been to stay alive and leave town indefinitely. You might remember that the Apostle Paul faced a similar situation as Moses in Iconium. He preached boldly. He won many to Christ, but there were many others in the town 
who were riled up by the Jews and together with the rulers of the town threatened to stone Paul and company. The result of that threat in Acts 14 is in verses 5 and 6. Here it is. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and stone them, they they became aware of it and fled. Paul fled from the threat of being stoned, maybe even dying. Yep. See, it would be it would have been a mistake for him to to stay there and to conclude that Paul was afraid to be martyred for Christ is absolutely ridiculous. The rest of his life would prove the opposite. He was fearless. But being fearless for Christ does not mean being stupid. Once Paul could no longer be an influence for Christ in a particular town because of the threat of being harmed, it was better for the evangelistic mission to go where he could be an influence. That was just smart. In fact, Jesus also experienced the same kind of interruption, although it wasn't a threat on his life. Once the Jews, who had a very high messianic expectation, heard that Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah after all, well, they crowded in on him and pressed in, in on him so tightly that they made it nearly impossible at times for him to minister in a particular locale. In those instances, Jesus had to leave. Listen to Mark 1, verse 45. But he went out, began to proclaim it freely, to spread the good news around, to such an extent, this is somebody that Jesus healed, that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. I believe that Moses was fearless. He wasn't afraid to die for the cause of the gospel. Otherwise, he would never have come back to face mighty Pharaoh with nothing but a staff in his hand. No, at this point, he was concerned that his effort to deliver the nation would be halted by Pharaoh's campaign against him. So he did the smart thing, and he fled. Exodus 2.15 does not state that Moses feared for his life and left. No, he was concerned that the word of his actions would bring a hailstorm of attempts on his life and make it virtually impossible to continue his work as deliverer. So he did the smart thing and he left, just as Paul and company did from Iconium. Moses stayed alive to be available for God to use him as he would. But don't miss Moses' reason for leaving Egypt. Regardless of whether it's the first departure or the second departure, it was because of his firm belief in God's promise of future blessing. That's why he wanted to preserve the mission. Notice the last part of verse 27. Moses persevered as though seeing him who is unseen. Who is that? It's Christ. It's Messiah. Sometimes obeying the Lord incurs severe persecution. In Moses' case, it was death threats. And those threats loom just as much after his second departure as it did before his first departure. Moses was fick, uh, Pharaoh rather was fickle, and he would pursue Israel into the desert against his promise not to, in order to exterminate the nation. The writer explains that what drove Moses to persevere was his obedience 
uh, in obedience to God, rather, even against death threats, was his firm conviction that God would make good on his promises. He believed God's promises were as good as fulfilled, so he persevered as though he could see Messiah accomplishing his work of redemption and restoration. In other words, he acted as if it were a sure thing. Moses persevered through the threats and kept himself safe because he was anticipating the time when God would begin to fulfill his promises through him. Death threats are probably the worst it gets for any of us. Those of us who have taken up our cross daily to follow Christ, it's nothing that would stop us pursuing the kingdom or from obedient living. Paul said to die is gain for the Christian. If you believe that and you're prepared for the ultimate sacrifice, then you are definitely prepared for anything less severe than the threat of death. Right? This is why Jesus uses the worst case scenario when he, when he, when he talked about devotion to himself. In the first place, he wants all of us, our whole devotion, so that we would choose him even over our own lives. And if you're prepared to die for Jesus, which is what the reference to the cross means, then you are certainly prepared to live for him. And in the second place, anything that you encounter in life that puts you out, you should have no problem persevering through since it is far less than picking up your cross. If you can face death, you can handle defamation of character, betrayal, deception, hostility, being demeaned, marginalized, ignored, misunderstood, or inconvenienced. Sadly, many Christians handle those situations so sinfully you would think that they're facing death. And that's why Jesus calls us to be willing to forfeit our lives for his sake. If you would welcome that, then you can handle anything in a godly way. Finally, the way that we handle anything that assaults our faith, from threats of an unethical boss to someone who threatens our very life, we need to stay the course, persevere through it, and live obediently because of the new covenant promise that God has made to us a future blessing. Jesus is coming. He has gone to prepare a place for us to take us back to where he is. We may use this life to honor God regardless of what we have to go through in order to do that because the better life awaits. And the more we please the Lord here, the more we invest there. And the more we appreciate our reward. Let, me, let, let, let the Apostle John's words in Revelation twenty two twelve close out our time together. Jesus is coming quickly. And his reward is with him. A reward each, to reward each one of us as, to our, as, as our works deserve. 